Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Vegetius. Taking to the field. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and I am once again flying solo tonight. Our dear Thumbs is uh, is pretty sick at the moment. He's he's down with uh, some pretty nasty symptoms, and he's currently waiting on a test himself. My wife and I know that anxiety. We recently th- went through it ourselves. My wife and I tested negative, and hopefully Thumbs will too. Um, but here's wishing him a speedy recovery and missing him tonight. But before I, I get into the main bit of, of what I wanted to talk about for this intro, I just wanted to say thank you to to those of our listeners who have been reaching out to me and to, and to Thumbs to tell us how much the show means to them or to, or to give us a kind word or to uh, just, I don't know, um, to say nice things about us, I guess. That's that's what it boils down to. And it's it's just good to know. It's It's very good to know, especially with these trying times, what they are for everybody. It's good to know I'm not just sitting here speaking into the void. I've I've received so much personally from the Belagarth and Warhammer 40k communities. So much of my personal development has come from knowing people in these communities, and so it's just it's wonderful to be able to give something back and know that that is a is a meaningful contribution. So so thank you so much to those of you who have uh, gone out of your way to say something nice in the last several weeks. It it really does mean quite a bit, and it, it makes it so much easier to to get on and, and do this show, especially when I don't have a whole lot to talk about in the intro section. Once again, haven't been doing a whole lot of wargaming recently because there's not a whole lot of wargaming to be had safely, but I have been thinking quite a bit and I did kind of want to put out a, a PSA. Now, I assume that most of you like me are doing everything that you can to try to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. My co-host is doing absolutely everything he can too, but he's one of those frontline workers. His job uh, has him out there interacting with people on a fairly consistent basis. And so he doesn't have the ability to isolate in the same way that I do, but he's out there doing what he can to keep people fed and, and keep people going during these trying times. So I absolutely respect those of you who have to break the quarantine and leave any sort of safety in order to go out and make ends meet for your family and to provide for the rest of us in society. You are doing a huge service and I don't know if you've gotten the thanks that you need. So for all of you health healthcare workers, frontline workers, um, anybody who's, who's staying up late worrying about this and trying to find solutions, thank you so much. I hope the world recognizes your contributions uh, at some point. I know that I will sing your praises until I pass from this earth. However, for the rest of us, there's something that we can be doing too. And, and the analogy that came to mind, if you'll allow me to share my opinion for a second, again, I'm not a doctor, um, but I just, I tend to listen to doctors when they speak to me. And 
kind of what I'm seeing right now a lot with this pandemic is there is a certain subset of people who live by the mantra, I will not live my life in fear. And, and this has caused them to not want to curb anything that would be otherwise normal from their lives. They still would like to go about and do the things that they would normally because they choose not to live their lives in fear. And while there may be some extremely admirable uh, portions of that sentiment, the analogy I'd like to strike for you is I want to take you to the battlefields of World War I, where trench warfare dominated by and large. Now, this was because of the advent of uh, automatic weaponry being in heavy use, and so the, the sides would hunker down where the artillery and, and bullets couldn't reach them. Now, in these situations, of course, there's a lot of lead in the air, and some of these trenches, of course, they would be taller than a man's head. You could walk through them uh, standing upright, absolutely no problem, but other trenches would be considerably shallower, and, and you would probably have to crouch moving through them. Uh, because the upper part of your body, your shoulders, your neck, your head, would be exposed. And sometimes, but not always, there'd be a sniper on the other side. And these trenches were separated by quite a bit of distance. And so snipers are not always accurate. Like this image in the Hollywood movies of snipers always hitting their targets straight through the eye or something like that is grossly over-exaggerated. Uh, the majority of snipers in history, I'm fairly certain, have missed the majority of their shots. And let's say in this analogy that our sniper across the field is doing just that. The majority of the shots that come across the field don't hit anybody at all. Some of the shots that come across do hit people, but those shots, let's say the majority of them are, are grazing wounds or surface wounds, something, something a flesh wound that, that might leave some sort of disfigurement or damage, but the person survives. They're, they're ultimately okay, if you count just living as being okay. But uh, a smaller percentage, of course, get struck in a, in a vital place, in a vital organ of some sort, and they perish. Now, in this situation, if somebody were to be walking around with their head and shoulders upright above the trenches, or even worse, walking around out in no man's land, and say to you, I choose not to live my life in fear, the question I would ask of that person would be, is this bravery or foolishness? Ignoring common sense... Is that not living in fear, or is that ignoring reality? That is the question I pose to all of you, because at the moment, we are at war. We are at war with an enemy that has declared war on our entire species. This enemy is nefarious. This enemy is sneaky. This enemy does not immediately reveal themselves. They infiltrate workplaces, homes, cars, small groups, small gatherings, restaurants. This enemy is meticulous and calculating. And when this enemy finally chooses to reveal itself, it can take from us the most vulnerable and at risk of our population. Now, being at war, should we not do everything we can to achieve victory? Is that not what this show is about? Achieving victory? And in this particular war, I would ask you, what can we be doing to help achieve victory? Because there's certain people that have to run out into that no man's land. Our healthcare workers, for instance, are sprinting out into that no man's land, putting their own lives at risk in order to drag our wounded back to safe, friendly lines. Are we not doing them a disservice by wandering around in the no man's land looking to get shot when we don't need to? And I'm, again, I'm not saying that, uh, that everybody's going to be able to do this perfectly. I know many of us have kids. Many of us have jobs. Many of us have to travel for one reason or another. We, we might have sick parents that we have to take care of. There are 
so many responsibilities that keep many of us from being able to do a perfect quarantine plan. But just because we can't do it perfect doesn't mean we shouldn't try at all. I appreciate those of you who have sat through this presumptuous speech of mine. I know it is not the reason that you come to this show to be preached at, but with this show uh, releasing kind of uh, at the beginning of the holiday season for many of us, I just thought that this would be a good reminder for us because I would like to see as many of you as possible across the table from me and on the field when this is all said and done. But that's enough doom and gloom for today. I appreciate again you listening and I, I hope that you and your loved ones stay safe through this very trying time for our species. But without further ado, let's get to the first section for today's episode on taking the field, keeping health and morale. For those of you who have been with us from the beginning, some of this might seem like a rehashing of old material, but as Thumbs and I have said before, we find it is better to kind of go over something again and try to bring it into a fresh light rather than try to neglect it because these things are mentioned multiple times in multiple texts for a good reason, because they are highly important. Also, the other reason that I personally don't mind the repetition is that I am working under the assumption that very few of you, except for those of you uh, whose names I definitely know, at home, who are not taking notes. Now, you can unclench. There won't be a quiz at the end. You're okay. I expected that the majority of people would be listening to this show either while they were in their workshops working on something or reading a book or driving or at work or, or something along those lines. I assume the most of you are not sitting there pen in hand, diligently scribbling down everything I say. That being said, that would be one of the reasons why this repetition is not necessarily a bad thing, because uh, these things might fade. They are not the most exciting of elements of war, or of war gaming for that matter. However, they are the underlying basis for which we can then operate our war gaming and, and actual warfare. So... In this section, Keeping Health and Morale, again, we're going to kind of go over a few things that, uh, that help you personally keep up your health and morale, and also your, uh, your army, your group that you might be working with. This. These are uh, good pointers for, for anybody of any sized group. And for those of you who are doing Warhammer tournaments, some of these might apply and, and some might not. Again, uh, with the absence of camping outside, now if, if there is a Warhammer tournament someplace, where there is outdoor camping that is widely practiced, that's awesome. I would love an invitation because that, that is the coolest thing I've heard. The majority of Warhammer tournaments, however, that I've heard of take place within a hotel where you have a nice, relatively comfortable hotel room to be able to go back to at the end of the night. So something like chopping wood, not necessarily important for you and probably not advisable considering that the hotel will frown upon the, uh, at the bare minimum, the burn marks on the rug. So... This first area is care to provide forage and provisions. We've said this before that, as Napoleon said, an army marches upon its stomach. And that is, is, is absolutely true. It continues to be true. The quote from the text that I want to share with you today is, Famine makes greater havoc in an army than the enemy and is more terrible than the sword. Now, this is also true right now. I know uh, many of us are starting to neglect our eating habits, and this is true for myself. I, I do not have the same calorie requirements that I was having during a regular event season when I'm exercising regularly with other people. And so I have started eating like one meal a day 
and then like a couple very 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 small meals apart from that but just like the one big meal and that's that's not correct i should be eating three moderately sized meals a day or four moderately sized meals a day not just the one relatively big one so my diet has gotten somewhat wonky in the past several months as well and it's just something to to work on for myself and perhaps for you for you as well but these, uh, these provisions that we're talking about either need to be gathered in sufficient quantity before your campaign or be commuted in funds for purchase during. Now, again, this is, this is very applicable to the things that we do because I know at a Belagarth event, you know, you can absolutely bring your own food at whatever varying quantity and quality you want. If you want fresh fruit, vegetables, and meat, and you have a camp stove and want to put the time and effort into making quality, uh, excellent homemade meals, you can do that. If you want to eat out of an uncooked Campbell's soup can, then you can do that too. Uh, by the way, I've, I've definitely been a poor college student. I've done that before. But you want to make sure that this is it. You've got a plan in place before you get going or that you've got the funds when you get there. It's kind of the same thing with the War Tammer tournament, I'm sure. You know, you could, you could pack a bunch of sandwiches and, and some snacks uh, before you go so that you have some food that you know where it's at or much like a Belagarth event you could bring some money and make sure that you're buying food either there at the event if they've got it available or going out into the community to grab fast food or groceries as you need them so either of these things is fine either of these things is absolutely fine as long as you've got a plan to eat uh, an army cannot march if it is hungry and it, or, or if it does march it will not do so happily so what did food look like for the ancient Romans? What, was, what, was, uh, what did they try to make sure that they could provide for their soldiers? Well, they had four things, and I think Vigetius talked about this in the previous book of his, uh, but corn, wine, vinegar, and salt were the big ones that they were looking off of. Uh, water obviously kind of goes in with that, but water is its own separate category, its own separate importance. You absolutely need water, and it's its own consideration. But why corn, wine, vinegar, and salt? Well, corn, or any other sort of uh, maize or, or starchy thing, is easily preserved and transported. It can either be harvested locally from, from farmers either on the way or in the vicinity of the camp, or it can be transported easily from another site. So corn would have been extremely useful at this time because there was no refrigeration. So trying to transport any sort of meat or any other sort of perishable item long distance would have been impossible. And, and if, if you actually wanted it to nourish the soldiers on the other side, that, w that wasn't the option. So corn, you can make it into a lot of different things too. So corn's very useful. And you can combine it with what you might be able to forage locally. The wine, as we've discussed before, alcoholic beverages of previous ages were usually far weaker in terms of... Uh, alcohol content than modern like beer or wine would be this wine would would mostly be a purifying device you'd either add it to water to make sure that the water was fairly clean you could add it to your cooking in order to either season the cooking or provide a base for the cooking and of course it could be drunk as uh, something to keep morale up and keep pain low because the aches and pains anybody who's been to a Bellagarth event who is of age if you are 21 years or, or older anybody of age who has been to a Bellagarth event knows the curative effects of a beer at the end of the day. It just, it takes off some of those aches and pains that especially those of us who have gotten a little older tend to experience. And it was absolutely used for the same purpose back in the when, when they didn't necessarily have ibuprofen, acetaminophen, or aspirin close on hand. Now, the vinegar 
is another important thing because the vinegar is a purative agent. It also is a thing that you can use to rehydrate yourself. I know I've told the story before about how I was down at one of my first Southern events and there was this young woman wandering on the field offering people pickles and pickle juice. And I was so confused. I thought maybe this is just a strange custom. Perhaps it's it's got some lore reference. They're, they're doing this for an in-character thing. Like, I couldn't figure it out until I drank some pickle juice on a particularly hot day, and I don't think it hit my stomach. My body, I felt like my body absorbed it before it even got there because it contained everything I needed to help rehydrate myself. So vinegar and other forms of brine are are a very good source of this salt or a very good source of a rehydrating thing. Not, not actually salt. Salt is the next thing. Also a good preserver, something you can add to other things and something that you need if you are putting in a lot of work. You're losing a lot of water weight. Therefore, you need something to help you retain some more water weight. And the final thing that, the, that Vegetius talks about needing is water. And we'll get more into what type of water you're looking for and how to make sure that you've secured good water a little bit later on in this section. So this last uh, thing that he mentions in the uh, forage and provisions section, actually, this isn't something that he wrote down. This is something I wrote down because, like I was saying, because of the nature of uh, the lack of preservation at the time, uh, not having the refrigeration necessary for transporting perishables long distance, uh, protein was in short supply while on campaign. It was whatever the guys could hunt uh, in the field. And if the animals hear this large army coming, you better believe that most birds and deer are going to be gone at that point. They're not going anywhere near <laughs> a large army on the move. And so uh, for a lot of these armies, they had to kind of forego a lot of protein when they were on the march because they just didn't have it in a ready supply. We do. Uh, we know about a lot of different grains that have proteins in them. We know a lot about a lot of different um, of course, the meats, uh, dairy products and everything that have protein in them. And so even if you're not consuming protein before you fight, because I've absolutely noticed a difference, like if I'm eating meat right before I go on the field or even like the morning of, like before I go on the field, I will be slower. I feel a little bit more sluggish because my body, it takes longer to, to digest meat as part of it. It takes more energy to digest meat. And so it may not be a good thing for a breakfast or a lunch option, but I highly recommend having some meat. If you're, if you're a meat eater, obviously vegetarians, you guys have plans to acquire protein from other sources. But for those of us who are meat eaters, dinner is a good time for that. Because at the very least, if you get sleepy, you can just go to bed. Whereas if in the middle of the day you're getting sleepy, you may not necessarily have that option or not want that option. And again, there's a lot of different ways to acquire protein, not just in meat, but there's there's grains and, of course, dairy products in which you can acquire them. Eggs are an excellent source of protein, but it's something that we should absolutely think about in the modern age because protein is energy. It's how we're going to get our long-term energy for especially like these week-long events. You have to make sure you've got a protein source. Absolutely must. And, and whatever that is for you. Again, if you're not a meat eater, uh, you've got options that I'm sure you know better, f far better than I do uh, because I... I uh, have not been able to put down the meats. So that's care to provide forage and provisions. Our next section here deals with the means of preserving health. And this again is not just the health of the overall army, but the health of the individual. These books are by and large written for commanders, but those of us who aren't even commanders can glean some wisdom from them. So this first uh, piece of advice that Vegetius offers in preserving health is to avoid unwholesome marshes. And what this means is areas where a lot of water collects for a long period of time and it stays still. 
Now, there, there's a lot of different reasons for this. Back in Vegetius's time, of course, you had to deal with a lot of uh, illnesses that would have come out of a marsh, either from drinking bad water or from insects that were carrying it. Even even today in certain parts uh, of, of the world where our listeners will be fighting, you too have to deal with insects that, that bear some sort of, of nasty viruses or, or uh, parasites or something like that that you definitely don't want to mess with. Mosquitoes, of course, are the, are the big ones, but we also have ticks and and other such creatures that can infect somebody. And so these are all good reasons for avoiding unwholesome marshes, avoiding disease, but also in terms of just comfort, if you are camped in an area that is extremely low-lying or muddy or wet, that means that moving around out there, you're going to get mud on everything because there's going to be mud on your boots when you come in, mud on your garb when you come in. It's going to get all over everything inside your tent. It might even get into your tent from seeping in through some potential weaknesses in the fabric. Uh, of course, that water is potentially going to get in there too. And so it's just, it's wholly unpleasant to camp near a marsh. And not to mention that if you're near a body of water, the temperature is going to drop far further like further down than it will other places at night. Now, in some places that might be a blessing, but for most people that's going to be an unwelcome morning when you wake up and you're much chillier than anybody else at the uh, at the campground. So, avoiding unwholesome marshes is a good idea, whether it's to avoid things like Zika or West Nile virus or whether it's to avoid just a very uncomfortable night's sleep. Uh, all these things contribute to you and your group not being as effective on the field as you want to. Dry plains must have shade or shelter. And I mean this beyond what, what your normal tent would be. Most of our modern tents are made of some sort of uh, like, like poly material. I'm not even sure what to call it, but it's like that, that plasticky stuff that's, that's rainproof and it's good for that. But it also holds heat like you would not believe. And if you haven't been out on the dusty plains with just one of those tents for shade, then don't try it. It's, it's not pleasant because there are some events that I've been to, especially here out west, where you have some wide open plains areas where it gets downright hot during the day, where it might be in the hundred and teens out on the field with the, the heat coming off of the ground. And if in that place you don't have shade to be able to retire to between matches or, or uh, you know, kind of in the heat of the day, that's going to be a bad time. There was, there was one site for Chaos Wars that I can remember that didn't have like an ounce of shade there. There were a lot of different groups that brought shade in the form of larger tents that had better airflow, uh, like like open-sided tents and that sort of thing, military surplus tents that could be uh, kind of manipulated in certain ways to allow the air through. But just your normal tent does not allow the kind of airflow that you're going to need to keep cool. It's just going to become an oven in there. So you're looking for either big, shady, shady trees like you find in the in the south and in the east. Oh my gosh, you guys have some amazing trees over there for <laughs> just standing under in the heat of the day thick foliage, blocks all the sun. It's wonderful. Or some artificial uh, sun blocker, some artificial shade in the form of a canopy or a larger tent. These are all very good ideas in order to pr preserve your health in these places because getting too hot leads to dehydration, leads to heat stroke. All of these are no bueno. And in that same vein, never camp without a tent. I know it can be tempting, especially for those of you who might be just starting out and may not have very large pocketbooks, may have never been camping before, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'll just go and rough it. It'll be fine. It, it's not, there's no rain forecasted or anything like that. Everything will be good. 
I I agree with Vegetius here. It's it's good to to take some caution here. Even in places where you don't necessarily have a tent, I have absolutely gone to friends and said, "Hey, do you mind if I occupy a corner of your tent? You know, I'll 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 keep my stuff to itself sort of thing, but uh, you know, sleeping out exposed is just not a good idea because, you know, things happen. And maybe maybe I'm more sensitive to this coming from Montana than other people who come from maybe more predictable climbs, but we've absolutely had freak blizzards here in June or August. Just come out of nowhere. It's been otherwise warm in the 80s or 90s, and then it just snows. Snows, like torrentially snows overnight, or we get a, a freak frost that comes and uh, and drops everything down, or rain that comes out of nowhere because the mountains make their own weather. I digress, but the the point is you don't always know what the weather's going to do, and even if at the beginning of the week the weather forecast looks good, uh, trends could change and, and the weather could absolutely change and then you're left out in the open without a tent so that's no bueno the other thing about a tent not just from sheltering yourself uh, against the elements it's also a very very convenient place to store all of your things you know your weapons your clothing whatever mis- miscellaneous items you brought around for nightlife or for characterization or even just for, for kicks um, all those things can be stored very nice, neatly inside a tent. Not having a tent means that either those things are out sitting in the open, which, you know, I, I trust people for the most part, but I also think that the best form of trust is not giving the person the, the chance to be dishonest. Like, that's that's the best form of trust with people, is you don't give people the chance to be dishonest. Or, you know, kind of storing them all over the place, in which case you have to go find them uh, at the end of the event or storing them in somebody else's tent, in which case you have to worry if that person's going to leave early, yada, yada, yada. Point of the matter is, bring your own tent. Even if it means you you just have a shield, you can't afford a sword, then you'll be a shield bearer for that event, but at least you will be a dry shield bearer while you sleep, and that's important. The other, uh, the next piece of advice here is to fight or work in the early day before the heat. Now, if you're in an area where the temperature is not going to get much above 70 or 80 degrees, this isn't that much of a consideration. You know, you can take breaks throughout the day and make sure that you're you're staying hydrated, and that's pretty all right. But again, like those some of those fields that can get upwards of 115 or 120 degrees just with either the concentration of the heat or humidity or what have you, in these places, you definitely want to get the hard stuff out of the way early. Now, and this, this might be an anathema to many of us. The idea of staying up late and hanging out with our friends is extremely tempting. And I have to tell you that for most of my career, I definitely chose that over getting up early. Now, that being said, at events where it does get cooking like that, some of the best fighting occurs in the morning while it's still a little bit cool before it gets super hot. Because often when it does get hot like that, the heat persists long after the sun has gone down. You're dealing with that heat long after people are actually going to want to fight. And so that early morning fighting is going to be the best, the best fighting for the most part. Same thing for work. You want to get that out of the way before the heat of the day is upon you and before you have to deal with that scorching sun or that boiling humidity. Yeah, it's, it's just a good idea to kind of get it out of the way early because then you have the rest of the day to nap potentially if you need to or, or go about uh, hanging out with people or, or whatever the case may be. I know I'm getting to be an old man because most of the time in an event anymore after the sun goes down, I get sleepy and I, and I go to bed right early. Now, this means that my preferred way of serving my community, which is doing weapons check in the morning, 
is pretty easy for me. It's not much of a, a sacrifice because I'm usually up before most of the rest of the camp is. And so when weapons check starts, I'm right there, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, already had breakfast and everything, and I'm, I'm ready to go. So I don't mind serving in that way because I'm just usually not up late enough to, to have it be an issue. So I, I guess that's easy for me. My work is at the beginning of the day. Um, but for the rest of us, it's just a, it's just a suggestion. I, I definitely know that there's people who can still stay up, hang out with people until the early morning and still get up and, and fulfill some sort of early morning shift. So I'm not saying that you're not hardcore enough to do it. Uh, just saying that it does make things easier. The next thing is to prepare for cold weather. And this is in the form of either clothes and or wood. If you're going to be at a site that allows wood burning fires, whether they're above the ground or in the ground, it's a good idea to have wood before you go. Some sites will allow gathering of wood on the site, either like usually deadfall, they're not going to allow you to chop live live trees, and other sites won't. So it's it's a good idea to to know before you go so you know if you need to bring a, a cord of wood with you or not. The clothes is something that you can always prepare for. Every single event that I go to, I pack my my long johns that I was issued by the military. And they are old at this point. They've lost their elasticity, but I can, you know, they, they work in a pinch and they're still exceptionally warm. They, they still work. And, and most events I go to, because most events take place in the summer, I don't end up using them. You know, the layers of clothes that I put on at night or the, the large amounts of garb that I'm using uh, don't necessarily, like, I, I, I keep enough heat that way. But... On those few events, on those few occasions that I've been, been at an event and needed, absolutely needed some cold weather gear, it has come real handy. And it doesn't take up much space, you know, just having a little bit of cold weather gear, something that's specifically set aside for if it gets chilly. You know, it doesn't take much, up much space in a bag. And you will definitely thank yourself uh, if you're there at an event and the temperature drops below what you were expecting or below what you thought you could take. You know, I've, I've definitely looked at it and been like, 50 degrees, that won't be nothing. But then you've been fighting all day in 90 degrees, it drops to 51 degrees, and that feels downright chilly by comparison. Um, so just for your own comfort, it's a good idea to have that. Especially if the uh, site isn't going to allow you to have campfires, which are the other main source of heat for folk. Now we get to the idea of, of a pure water source. You want to make sure that you have access to a pure water source. Now what that means is you've either brought in bottled water, you are drinking tap water of some sort, or you know that the water on site is potable. Now a lot of sites that I've been to have water pumps or spigots or whatever the case may be, and most of them go through a filtration system. Most of them are safe to drink. Now that being said, I have absolutely been to sites as well that did not have potable water right there on site. You either had to boil it or strain it or something, but it was like coming straight from the lake or something along those lines. Like I, I know when I went out east, like I was, I was so used to just being able to basically drink right out of the spigot in most places here in the west that I went out east to one of the sites and I went to drink out of one of the spigots and I was glad one of my unit mates was nearby to dissuade me from that course of action because I would have done it no problem. I'd have drank straight lake water and probably spent the rest of the event curled up on my cot. It would not have been good. Um, so make sure that you know. Make sure that you know before you drink the water if it's good to drink. And if you have questions about it, boil it just in case. You know, you can never hurt it by boiling it. Medical supplies. You want to have medical supplies at every level of what you're doing. I, I carry a med bag, like a road medical bag, in my car wherever I go. Uh, we have a realm 
med bag that somebody has that is arranged to come to every realm practice that occurs every time. And it's, it's a little bit more complicated than the bag I have in my car. It's got a few more bandages and splints and, and, and maybe some more painkillers than I might carry on my person, but that's because it's supposed to be for different types of injuries. I know that when I go to an event, my unit mates often bring uh, multiple, even in this particular case, because I actually have multiple nurses in my unit. Uh, but we always have at least, if not at least one, if not two, dedicated medical bags that are there in our camp if somebody gets hurt uh, with whatever somebody might get hurt with at an event. And the same thing goes at the event level. You've got the event coordinators, which I, I have never been to an event where they didn't have some sort of medical supplies there on site in order to administer some first aid. Now, again, these medical supplies do not have to be that amazing. They just have to make sure that you survive and or remain intact until real medical attention can get there. They do not take the place of a hospital or a dedicated ER staff. So it's unless you're going really deep into the wilderness and not necessarily doing this for an event, like the medical supplies that we're going to have are not going to be that complex, I guess, or, or, or really that comprehensive. They're really just supposed to be there to be uh, almost a literal band-aid in some cases um, until you can get there to see real medical attention. But it's still good to have them just in case. You know, if somebody gets a really nasty cut and they're losing uh, a lot of blood, for instance, it's good to be able to bandage that. You know, they're going to need stitches and a, a qualified medical personnel need to do that in sanitary conditions. But uh, it's good to be able to put the gauze and the and the bandage on there before so that they, you know, don't bleed out. Or in the case of, of a cut that isn't necessarily bleeding out, but let's say it was done with something that was dirty at the time. Making sure you have some, some antiseptic, something to, to clean that wound out is very important. You definitely don't want something getting infected, especially in the 21st century. That just seems kind of weird. Um, to have something go gangrenous in the 21st century, don't let it be you. So, uh, or, or in the case of a broken bone, having some, something so that you can splint is a great idea. Uh, again, some mild painkillers. Those are, I mean, uh, my med bag, I have to continually ref refill the uh, ibuprofen <laughs> because, you know, of course, there's 10,000 aches and pains that one can get while in the field. So the ibuprofen is definitely the most hit thing in my med bag. But Everybody's going to have their own preferences. Everybody's going to have their own things. The point is that if all of us are prepared in this way, that means if somebody gets injured, somebody is going to be prepared enough to help them and make sure that they uh, are able to get to the, the assistance that they actually need. The last thing in this, this small section on these means of preserving health is a good exercise regimen is a, is a fantastic idea. And of course, this is no stranger to us in the modern age. Every doctor that you will go see recommends, you know, a certain amount of exercise every week, especially cardio to keep the heart healthy, uh, is, is we know that to be a necessary part of health. It also keeps us in shape, keeps us from getting hurt when they're on the, we're on the field, because, uh, that's a great way to hurt yourself is if you've been in really good shape and you were used to fighting at a certain level and you take a, a long amount of time off and you've stopped working out, probably stop stretching, and you come back on the field and try to do exactly what you were doing before you left, you might very well hurt yourself because you aren't, your body is not used to performing at that level anymore. You might have the muscle memory, but you are probably not going to have the support, the bodily support to really have that muscle memory be truly effective without hurting yourself in the process. So continuously keeping up a good re exercise regimen, again, isn't just good for the heart, but it's good for everything else that we do when it comes to fighting. 
yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's all I have to say on that particular section. So this uh, this last section in this uh, keeping health and morale up area is preventing mutiny in an army. Now again, this is I think this is extra poignant at the moment because a lot of us are stuck indoors or or with a limited social circle, and we might be feeling the cabin fever a little bit might be feeling a little mutinous and uh, you know those of us in larger households might be having to deal with more mutinous elements than others cough cough teenagers cough cough so this is a, a really good thing not just for when we're actively deployed in the field and keeping your unit in a, a good mindset and from mutinying obviously but also a way to help your household and your your small group of people during this time when uh, you know the tensions are definitely running high the first recommendation here is to keep them busy, employed in the field, or inspecting arms. Now, at an event, this is pretty easy, and I know a lot of units that, that do keep people actively busy during the day. They expect you to be volunteering if you're not actively on the field, and if you're not doing one of those things, you will be voluntold. The BOF come to mind. And, and, and this is a good way of keeping people present in the moment and working towards things. You know, boredom is a soldier and really anybody's worst enemy when it comes to, to how you spend your time. And so making sure that you're, you're being actively employed in the field or inspecting arms. That's the other part of this, if, is if you're sitting there and you're training with your, your arms or you're inspecting them, uh, maintaining them, keeping them in good condition... These are all good uses of one's time while in the field in order to keep you focused, keep your mind from wandering. I, I know we've discussed on this show before the importance of being present in the moment when you're on the field, but that also counts for at the event too, because if you're present at the event, then that means it's much easier to be present on the field. Whereas if your mind is extremely distracted during the rest of the event, then it probably is going to wander while you're on the field as well which might open you up for an opportunity for your opponent to, to gack you. So in this way, this keeps you sharp and keeps you focused on the task at hand, which is performing the best that you can. Now, for those of us who play intellectual wargaming as well, for instance, 40k, uh, this is done by going over your rules over and over and over again. You cannot know your rules well enough. Let me say that again. You cannot know your rules well enough because while you're sitting there, with no pressure on whatsoever, it might be very easy to recall the ballistic skill of your units or, or the toughnesses of your units. But while actively against an opponent, especially if there's any sort of time limit, that pressure might cause you to forget that, uh, that one more time of, of going through your rules and making sure that they're tight before you go out and play may have been what you needed in order to save yourself a 10 second or, or minute long check in the rule book for the thing that you need. So in this way, this is also a good way. If you're back at your hotel room and you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, we'll just watch TV until my next round or until tomorrow, why not have your rule book out? Why not be, be going over what you need and looking at your dudes and making sure you remember who's who and what you want to do with them or even setting up mock intros? I, I do that with my personal board at home. I'll set up different deployments, different different like formations and be like, okay, where are the weaknesses? What can I do with this formation? Is this something worth remembering or is this me just playing with my plastic soldiers? You know, that these are good ways to reinforce those those positive lessons, those positive ways of interacting with your army. So keep yourself busy and inspect your arms. The next piece of advice is constant drill in whatever is available can ensure confidence. Now, this doesn't have to be a, a designated, we're going to go do drill kind of thing. 
You know, like we said before, very few groups have or would tolerate a designated drill sergeant of any sort. Now, that being said, saying, hey, you know, we like for my housemates, when we all lived at the base of Mount Jumbo, going, hey, you know, we're all, we're all kind of bored today. Who wants to go for a hike? And so we'd grab a bunch of gear and we'd hike to the top of the mountain that was in our backyard. We'd go fight at the top of the mountain and we'd come back down. You know, we were training in what was available. Or at that Chaos Wars at, uh, that Thumbs and I love to reference, where they had that big river that was kind of running around the back of the property. One of the best things to do there was to go and splash around in the river and kind of do it under the pretense of going and hanging out or having fun. But people would often go out and kind of swim in the current and be moving around out there. And that was great. That was a great way of moving the body that was kind of getting it limbered up and clean, but also kind of using the muscles and, and using them in a different way than you wouldn't normally use. You know, if, if you're living near the ocean, going and training in the ocean, doing some surfing maybe, those are all good ways of training. So, so whatever you've got available, if you've got parkour gyms or just regular gyms, parks, uh, hiking trails, whatever the case may be, whatever's nearby, use it to keep yourself busy. You know, for, and, and even right now, like what I've got at home is I've got some, some weights that I've been working with. I've got a plethora of swords that I've been practicing with. I've got a punching bag that I've been working. We've got a, an exercise bike that I've absolutely been hitting as well. So, so these are all things that, that are just here that I'm trying to use. Um, but you know, if my arm was better, you know, we've got stairs on the outside that I could be doing pull-ups on and that sort of thing. Like you don't necessarily have to have designated workout equipment in order to use things to work out on, you know, doing jumps over a fence is great. We've talked about vaulting on this show before. Vaulting is a really good way to build upper body strength. Uh, climbing on things, if you've got safe stuff to climb on, great way to build grip strength, upper body strength. So so be creative. Be creative. If, if you don't necessarily have these things at your place, uh, go on YouTube, and I know you can find people who are DIY home gym folks, and they certainly are going to have some good suggestions for you. Another good way of preventing mutiny, not just in yourself, but in your group, is non-fighting social activities. And I think Thumbs and I touched on this either last time or the time before. And these non-fighting social activities are just a way to, for you to remember that you actually like these people outside of fighting. That they have complex personalities, wants, desires, uh, a soul, if you believe in that sort of thing, off of the fighting field or outside of, of a competitive like Warhammer environment. And this is a great way of doing realm bonding or, or team bonding or even just, just bonding with a group of friends is making sure that you're spending time doing things outside. And this, this builds cohesion and this builds trust and confidence in one another in ways that, that also form while on the field, but it's better to reinforce them off the field as well. You know, like it's just a, it's just a good idea in order to, if you like the person standing next to you, you're more likely to go out of your way to defend them and vice versa. So this is a mutually beneficial thing for everybody to kind of develop greater bonds. And right now, like I'm not, uh, please take this. I know I, at the at beginning I was talking about, you know, doing what we can to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And here I am talking about doing non-fighting social activities on a year, not 2020, um, non-fighting social activities are a great idea. Right now, when we're all so separated by uncertainty, I've been going out of my way to make sure that I'm calling people. Like, I'm speaking to people that I normally only talk to at events, but I'm saying, hey, you know, I haven't seen you in a, in a year or two. I'd love to talk to you on the phone for a little bit. Can we do a video chat? I'm normally not a huge video chat kind of guy, but it's what I got this year, so I'm making it work. 
Um, and that's helping me so much. It's helping me remain connected to my community. It's helping me remember what I'm what I'm doing this for, um, what I'm what I'm holding out hope for. It's it's a really good way of remaining connected. So don't don't allow the isolation of of the present day to keep you away from people who matter to you. You know, even even if you can't necessarily afford a long conversation on your data plan, uh, you can find some free Wi-Fi and do a, a like a Facebook Messenger call. That's for free or a Zoom call or something like that. There's a lot of different ways to be able to reach out and talk to folks and, and either one-on-one -on -one or, or big parties or whatever the case may be, um, whatever works for you. Just remember that we're all social creatures, even those of us who are extremely introverted and occasionally antisocial, like myself, we still need people. We still need one another. And we have to remind ourselves of that occasionally, but we can't, we can't allow ourselves to fall into despair at any given time. So, especially right now, these non-fighting social activities are important, but remember to stay safe when doing them. If you are in a leadership position within a unit or a realm, it is important to heed complaints and to keep your promises. These are both extremely important if you want the confidence of people who serve under you. Uh, because if you're not heeding complaints, if, uh, if you're not listening to what people are telling you, then there's going to be resentment. There's going to be a bitterness that evolves because people are not going to feel listened to because they're not being listened to. And if people don't feel like they can make their voices heard in a constructive way or in a, in a, in a, in a verbal way, they will make it heard in other ways. They will act out. Uh, or, or at the very worst, they can be, there can be schisms in units or in realms that result from people not feeling heard, feel, people feeling like they are not being represented correctly. And so it's very important to heed the complaints of all of your members in order to make sure that the realm or event or the unit is, is serving its members properly. And on this same idea is keeping your promises. It's not enough to just sit there and give lip service and pretend to listen to people. You also have to follow through. You know, if your unit mates have said, you know, we want to do X, Y, or Z, and you say, okay, yeah, we're going to do X, Y, or Z, and then you don't follow through on that, then you are a liar. And nobody trusts a liar. These are all, again, this section is methods to prevent mutiny in an army. So again, if you are a, a leader of some sort, you need, this is one of the big, big important ones that, that stands out as like probably the, one of the most important things we're going to talk about for this little section. Heeding the complaints and keeping your promises. If you do both of these things, people are willing to forgive a lot if they feel as though they are being represented properly. People are willing to forgive your flaws and mistakes, which inevitably you will have because you're a human being, much like me. I was a realm leader for two and a half years, and I felt like I was failing more than I was succeeding. People told me I did a great job. I had people who were sad when I stepped down. I was surprised because I felt like it was two and a half years of failing, but I was failing forward that entire time. I was at least putting forth the effort. People saw me listening to them and trying to implement the things that I promised to do. Did I succeed all the time? No, not all plans go according to plan, but people saw the effort that I was putting forth and therefore they considered me a good, the same thing with thumbs, same thing with thumbs. He's, a, he's by and large a person who heeds complaints and keeps his promises. And he was our realm leader for quite a long period of time because of these reasons. People didn't want to vote him out. It's not that people weren't running against him. People wanted him to be their leader. <laughs> and in a democratic system, if people keep voting you in, that's a good, that's a good sign. So very important, very important to heed complaints and keep promises. And the last thing I want to talk about here is 
the idea of personnel management and specifically in breaking up problem elements and uniting what we call synergized persons. Now this first part, breaking up problem elements, there are always going to be those people in any group that you're in. And I, I've seen them everywhere. I saw them when I was in the army. I saw them in every church I've belonged to. I've seen them when I've been in school. I've seen them in my own family. There are problem elements that when put together, amplify one another's problem things, whether they be chronic pranksters or, or malcontents in some other way, people who, are, who will, are more likely to slack off near each other, or the worst kind, people who are likely to spread rumors and gossips and turn people against one another, these folks should be broken up. Now, again, in some place like the army, this is far easier done because, you know, somebody's sitting there at the top and they can say, okay, uh, private so-and-so and private such-and-such have been seen to be problem elements together. I'm in charge. I'm transferring private so-and-so to a different company. Problem solved. Well, with what we do, it can be a little bit more difficult because oftentimes these problem elements are friends and want to be together. And so it can be more difficult in order to separate them, not impossible at the realm or unit level, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's definitely a lot more difficult when you have the free will to deal with, when people are just allowed to hang out with who they want to hang out with. Now, there are some clever ways to do this. You can send one on an errand to do one thing and one on an errand to do another. Uh, you can try to have one on the field while the other's not or something along those lines. Uh, again, I leave it up to your creativity and you knowing your own people on how to do this, but the point being, if you have noticed problem elements, they are only going to get worse. They will not fix themselves because they are enjoying being problem elements. And so some tactic is necessary in order to to stop that. Uh, what Vegetius recommends, of course, is in lines with these, what we've already talked about. Separating people is, is definitely a suggestion. He also recommend, rec uh, recommends uh, docking people's pay, flogging, public executions, all of which we don't necessarily support on this show. Uh, that being said, breaking people up uh, a little bit easier, a little bit easier. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum is the idea of uniting synergized persons. People that you know work really well together. People who really bring out the best in one another. I am, uh, I, I think, of course, about Thumbs and Turkey. Uh, Thumbs, of course, is my co-host and Turkey is my apprentice. And while we all live together for a time, they live together for far longer before and after. And they always practice together, too. They were have been a part of the same unit, just as we all were. But these two guys just seem to have a... A thing. They just seem to have an energy. And when they take to the field together, they just are able to read each other extremely well. I feel this same way with Turkey Feathers and with Kaji, but I also am able to observe it in others. Kaji and Onir is another really good example. These are two individuals that if you see them wielding reds side by side, look out. Look out. Some amazing synergy. You know, if you get along with your significant other, that can be great synergy on the field as well. I think of Arshank and Tandar down in Dur de Marium, and, uh, just they read each other. They read each other very well. They they know each other's aggression levels so well, and they can when they're when they're fighting together on the field. It's it's quite it's quite scary. It's quite scary to go against. Point being, is if you know of these people, if you know of your thumbses and your turkey feathers, or if you know of your onis or your kajis, your your uh, tandars and your arshanks, you want to make sure that they are together as often as possible. I've definitely seen both different philosophies applied here of trying to mix people up each time, make people work with different people. And in, in practice, that's fine. 
trying to make sure that everybody knows how to work together because you never know who's going to make it to the end of the round. That's all a very good idea. That being said, when it comes for go time, you want to make sure that those who work best together are working together actively because that ensures that you and your team will benefit from that synergy. Let's say your team works really well with another team. Never a bad idea to team up, you know, become one big team. Hey, you know, there's a lot of ways to use this. So these are the ways to keep health and morale up while taking to the field and while off the field like we are currently during this pandemic. Again, we want to make sure to care for providing forage and provisions, whichever apply to you. You want to preserve that health and you want to prevent mutiny at all costs. And of course, this can also be a kind of an, an analogy for keeping our own sanity up right now and at other times as well. But uh, keeping your sanity, keeping your morale up is as much in line with preventing mutinies as anything else. So without further ado, I think we're going to progress on to our second section on numbers and deployment considerations. The lessons of this next section, I think, apply as much to physical wargaming as they do to intellectual wargaming, so I'm going to try to draw as many parallels as I can between the two. I do get excited, and I, I do sometimes talk fast, so if I miss a point, I apologize, but, uh, and I know that one of our themes on this show is picking a fight with a dead guy, and uh, I haven't done that much on this episode, and it, Every now and then, even somebody like Vegetius, who obviously wasn't a soldier or a historian, does get some things right. And so I, uh, I have very little to argue with him about in this particular episode. And so the first thing that we're dealing with here is the number which should compose an army. This is the, uh, the numbers that we're looking at when, we're, when our army takes the field. And this is both in Belagarth and in Warhammer 40k, or, or like an intellectual wargaming type thing. These rules apply. Because an army that is too numerous faces many difficulties. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Most, more soldiers is always better. You always want to have the bigger army, or at least Sun Tzu would say so. And while when you're looking at a lot of different types of military science, this might be true for the Romans and for many subsequent armies, it was not. Because as you'll see as we go on, size is not everything. And there are a lot of issues with having a very large force. The first one is that it is slow and unwieldy due to that very bulk. Now, when you're dealing with physical wargaming, this means that your force cannot operate together. Um, you're not going to get a concerted effort because the middle cannot hear what's going on on the wings and the wings cannot hear what's going on uh, on the other wing or in the middle. So you've got different groups of people, perhaps all with different ideas of how to execute a battle plan, moving in different... And sometimes it works out. Sometimes everybody uh, guesses rock, and the other side all guesses paper, and uh, and everything works out for the paper side. But more often than not, you get kind of a hodgepodge of success in different areas because there is not a concerted effort. And a large part of this is due to the fact that nobody knows what the other one is doing. And, uh, and again, this is, this is due to the battlefield communication. You can only scream so far. A voice can only reach so far. And so a large force can actually be somewhat more difficult to use in some circumstances. In 40K, this is absolutely true as well. Having a super large force is not only difficult to transport, but it is also difficult to use effectively 
in any small amount of time. Now, if you're playing a friendly game with somebody and you guys don't care whether or not you finish one particular night, you know, you can come back the next night and finish your game or whatever the case may be, then this isn't as much of a big deal. You can play whatever size force and this isn't necessarily going to be that big of a deal for you. But if you're going to a tournament where your rounds are timed, using a, a horde army is going to result in you not getting to to do as much as you might want to do. And unless you're trying to slow play your opponent, which don't try to slow play your opponent, that's that's very cheap. <laughs> that's a cheap way to achieve victory. Uh, apart from that, like I know a lot of tournaments have started using chess clocks, where each side is basically given 90 minutes or whatever, and if you've run out of your 90 minutes before your opponent does, your opponent is just allowed to make as many, mo many moves as they need to to make up the rest of that time. That's bad. That can be a very bad situation to find yourself in, and if your army is too large, it, uh, it'll absolutely put you into that circumstance. So, l slow and unwieldy due to bulk, one of the first difficulties faced by an army which is too numerous. Uh, the second consideration here is that column length leaves it vulnerable to harassment. Now, again, in previous episodes, we've discussed the fact that very few groups actually do line to column to line. Like, it, 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 very few groups are going to do it that organized. That being said, when a group is moving from one place to another, it often kind of strings out into an unofficial type of column. And when it is doing this, this is the most vulnerable time to be harassed. And the larger your column is, the more vulnerable it is to harassment. I have seen large unit. I've been a part of a large unit. I, I remember one particular battle when I was with the Urukai, when they were at the height of their power. We had a lot of members. I, I can't I wasn't a part of the leadership at the time, so I couldn't tell you exactly what our rosters were, but we were either the most or one of the most populous units on the field. And once people realized that not only were we large, but we were good at using those numbers in a pitched fight against one group, they started picking us off as we were moving across the field. So we'd be moving and the rear guard would get hit by a group. And while the majority of the group would move on, a few number in the rear guard who didn't feel like they could move on safely would stay behind to fight with that other group. And then somebody else would hit the middle, and so a few more people would stay behind there, and you'd get all these separate actions taking place at different places on the field without support between them. And in this way, we were whittled down. And I've seen it happen to other large groups too, and it particularly happens when they're in motion. When you're stationary, and when you're able to kind of direct your attack, you're at a very, very good position there. But when you are in motion and you can be hit at different areas and not necessarily, because no, again, I think that the front of the group may have stopped and turned around if they had known. But with all the hullabaloo of the battlefield, it was difficult to know that the rear had been hit because it was so far behind. So if you've got a, a smaller group, you're able to uh, kind of contain where the fight is going to happen a lot easier because you just have less to be attacked. In the same way, if you're playing an intellectual war game like 40k, the larger your group is, the more areas you have to worry about where it's going to come under attack. You know, if I've got a small force of space marines moving against a large force of orcs, you know, they can kind of steer me around, but I am going to choose where that battle takes place if I'm being smart about my movements because there are, there's so large of an orc line that I can sit there and be like, okay, where's the weak spot? All right, I can hit the weak spot. And they not may not be able to respond in time because their strength may be so so far away from where their weak is. Whereas if I'm using a smaller force, I want my force to be in support of itself. And so if I get hit on a weak spot in my force, I'm hopefully going to be able to recover because my strength is not far away. But if you've got a super large 
group or a super large army on the on the field, you may not have that option because your strength, if your opponent is smart, your strength is going to be away from where they're going to be attacking. And you're losing models when you should be able to be biting back and you're not. So a super large force is open to harassment on multiple fronts. The next point I'd like to make is the encumbrance of baggage makes crossing difficult. And again, this is, this is true in both Bell and in 40k, or physical and intellectual wargaming, but not necessarily on the field. This is more of like a getting there sort of thing. You know, if you're moving with a large group of people, or, or, or even worse, um, one of the things that happens here in Stygia is that normally there's only a, a few people that are actually driving to an event. Most of us attempt to negotiate a seat in somebody else's rig. Now, you know, if you're used to being one person driving down and you have one other person that jumps in with you, that's not that big of a deal. You know, you've doubled your baggage, but you've still got some good space if you need to bring some, some things back or, or, you know, somebody needs to lean back in their chair, whoever's in the passenger seat, hopefully not the driver. You know, you've got those options. You put one more person in there, it starts to get pretty tight. You put four people in there, it's really tight. And I've been to events where we've tried to fit five people in one rig with all their gear and woof. That is a difficult crossing because we don't have the long walks that the Romans would have had. We have long cramped car trips. And for some of you who might come from more populated areas of the country where your trip is only going to take you a half hour to an hour, this might not be that big of a deal. But as we've discussed before, when we go someplace from Stygia, that's a six hour trip minimum. So comfort is of far greater importance to us. And as I discussed before with the 40k thing, if you've got a super large army, that means that you need to get that super large army to your table. And if you're traveling a long distance or flying, God forbid, uh, that's going to be not just uh, an encumbrance upon you, but also more expensive to transport. So this encumbrance of the baggage makes crossings literally more difficult. Of course, what Vegetius was talking about was crossing rivers, but for our purposes, it's just getting to the event, period. It's hard to find forage for beasts and men. This, of course, is, is less important for 40k, where you don't need to worry about feeding your vast army of orcs, thank God. Um, but for a larger group, for like if I've only got three people in my crew and I need to worry about making sure that me and my group get fed, it's a fairly easy thing to do. You know, we can, we can do that without much difficulty whatsoever. However, if I've got a very large group of people and they're all looking to get fed, you've got a lot more difficulty on your hands there. This is why when there's multiple food vendors or multiple camp kitchens at an event, it's really a blessing, not just for the people at the event who then have options, but for the people running the kitchens who are not getting uh, inundated with more orders than they can handle. I've been at a few events where you only had one or two food vendors and that's what they did for the event. They, you know, they may have been looking to get some field time, but nope. Between preparation and cooking and doing dishes and then starting it again for the next meal, that was what they did. So uh, again, these large numbers are an issue in of themselves, especially when it comes to feeding. Now, again, if you're talking about an army that's several hundred thousand strong or some, some astronomical number like that, yeah, good luck finding uh, food and forage for all those beasts and, uh, and soldiers. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's hard. And then finally into this particular point of the difficulties is a large army that has suffered defeat is harder to reform. Now again, 
not so important for 40k where you the commander determine when they assemble and how they assemble and and really their discipline is is left up to you but in the case of Belagarth, it's absolutely true that if like for instance let's say on day one of the unit battles your team does decently well maybe not the best but you guys do decently well Second day, you suffer a defeat. For whatever reason, you just weren't feeling the vibe. Other teams were doing better. And your team, your very large team, has suffered a defeat. Now, on day three, you're going to have trouble, most likely, getting folks back out to the field. They're going to be tired, as is natural, by day three of an event. But there's also going to be that, that mentality of, of after a loss, of people wanting to avoid the field in that way again. But also being like, we've got other people. It'll be fine. You know, me and me and my two buddies can cannot go to the field because, you know, we've got so many people that I'm sure that they'll make up for it. But if you have a large group of people who all have this mentality of, ah, somebody else will be on the field, I'll be fine. You actually can end up losing more people, especially percentage wise from a large unit than you will from a small unit. I know that for us Dark Angels, there's so few of us typically at an event that it's pretty easy to pick out who's there and who's not. And if you are supposed to be there and you are not, it's pretty easy to send a runner looking for you. It's not like looking at a large group being like, I know people are missing, but I'm not sure who. No, like we all know each other by name. There's a small group of us. We're all camped together. And it's pretty obvious when a dark angel has not taken to the field. So, so in this way, it is a little bit easier to reform uh, for us after a defeat because uh, there's a, a measure of accountability there. If I'm not there, that means that one-eighth of my team is not there. And that's a big deal. That's a lot bigger deal than one-twentieth. You know, if you've got 20 people or one-fortieth, if you've got 40 people, you can, you can kind of mitigate that damage in your mind a little bit better. Whereas if it's a smaller team, you know that you're necessary. So a large army can actually be harder to reform for this reason. And I guess, I guess this actually does apply to 40K if you think about the morale phase, because the more people that are lost from a unit that negatively impacts the morale phase. So if you're starting with smaller units to begin with, like for instance, I won't run intercessors above the five man minimum. I, I won't uh, because I mean, they, they've already got good morale and all that, but it's also a matter of wanting to preserve that. I, I run my guardsmen in as small groups as I can, Skitari in as small groups as I can to kind of get around that idea of, because if a, you've got a large unit and it loses a large number of people. So let's say I've got a unit of 10 and I've lost eight and these are guardsmen. I might as well have not even brought those last two because they're running, they're out. And if those two groups would have been in two groups of like five and five, uh, the morale would have been far easier to deal with in that particular case. So yeah, that, that applies too. You know, keeping your groups, your, your units, even your just your, your actual units small is not a bad idea. The last point I want to make with the number which should compose an army is that discipline and skill are better than numbers. You can rely on discipline and skill far more than you can numbers for these, these reasons that we have listed above, slow and unwieldy due to bulk, the, the column length leaving it vulnerable to be harassed, and everything else that we just talked about. Discipline and skill can make up a lot for that. And this is the, the same idea with the Roman legion. They went against forces that were typically much larger in terms of just the numbers that they were going against. They were often against numerically superior foes, but their, their tactics, their technique in making sure that their soldiers were pretty darn elite worked much better than their opponents who just fielded large numbers of untrained 
infantry or poorly trained and poorly equipped infantry. So in this way, um, we can see that this absolutely works. Now, toward the end of the, the Roman Empire, when they were not only being overwhelmed by large numbers of enemies, but also the discipline and skill had been allowed to go more lax in the legions, this is when you started seeing the really big defeats that Rome suffered. This is when you started to see that, that slow but also progressively quicker decline because they didn't have this. You have to have one or the other. You have to have discipline and skill or numbers to even have a chance at winning. And if you don't have either, you're in a bad position. That's a very bad position. So our next uh, little section in numbers and deployment considerations is marching in the neighborhood of the enemy. So remember how we had said that a, a long column is uh, leaves it vulnerable to harassment? Of course, this is when you are marching in the neighborhood of an enemy. Um, so for any of us that are playing war games, you're there. If you can see your enemy across the field, you are absolutely in their neighborhood. So these considerations apply to any of us who play either Warhammer 40k or, or other forms of intellectual war gaming or physical war gaming in that usually when a battle is called, you've already started in the neighborhood. So what are the considerations that we need when we're maneuvering in the vicinity of an enemy? Well, you need to understand that anybody kind of as we touched on before, is more vulnerable when moving. And this applies for groups and it also applies for individuals. I'm, I'm actually doing a series of uh, interviews right now with individuals who have won Assassin's tournaments at Belagarth events. And I'm kind of looking for commonalities. I'm kind of looking for the techniques and the, and the kind of methods that they used in order to win. And one of the things I'm overwhelmingly hearing back, especially from those who use a dagger or other form of melee weapon to kill their opponents, is that it is much better to wait for them to be in motion and going to go do something else, trying to go get somebody while they're in their camp or they're surrounded by their friends just kind of talking someplace. Yeah, it's not a good idea. They're, they're more aware, they're more alert, they're paying attention, and they're far less vulnerable than they are when they're moving from camp to camp or activity to activity. And this is also true of armies. When you are in motion, that is when you are the most vulnerable. And so it's good to know where your enemy's at and what their speed capabilities are. Obviously, if you're going against uh, an opponent that is considerably slower than you, uh, you have a little bit more wiggle room. But if you know that your opponent fields very quick uh, units or very quick people, then you need to be a lot more careful in your motion because you don't want to be caught unawares and you don't want to be caught out in the open where if, if that's not where you want to be. So be aware you are most vulnerable when moving. It is also good to know the field and your enemy dispositions. I know I think I've, I've, I know I think, I know that's a, <laughs> I've just canceled out my own credibility there. But as far as I can remember, I make a habit of when I am at a new field or even an old, old field that I haven't been to in a while, I like to go out and walk the field itself. I like to figure out where the bumps are. I like to figure out where the low points are. I like to figure out where the good corners are, where, the, where, where you're going to be positioned, if you're going to get sun in the eyes, or if you can use the sun as a weapon against your opponent, maybe get it in their eyes. These are good things to know and just have a familiarity of the field. If you're at a Warhammer tournament, it is very good to know what terrain is on the field and where it is in, in relation to everything else. This is going to dictate where you can march safely and where you cannot, you know, where you're going to have to have ve ve vehicular considerations and where you're going to have a bit more of like open, 
like a shooting gallery type thing. These are all important things to know before you actually get going. So, I mean, if I'm in a tournament and they've already got the board set up and they're like, that's the terrain that you're going to play at. If I'm not playing, I'm wandering around looking at the boards, kind of formulating my plan, being like, okay, well, if I was to be you know, on this board, where would I want to be? What are the concerns? Where are the, you know, like the, the choke points? Where are the open like shooting ranges? Where do I need to be aware of various factors? And of course, knowing your enemy dispositions, knowing if your, your enemy is hungry and ready for the fight, knowing if they are a little browbeaten, knowing if they're new, knowing if they're experienced, knowing, just knowing anything about them is something that you can use to your advantage, is something that can be exploited. And of course, when you're dealing with something like 40k, it's fairly easy to know your enemy in some way, in that you can familiarize yourself with other armies. You know, you don't necessarily need to go out and buy every codex, but making sure that you at least on some level understand what the basic units are, how they work together, and what, what some of the pitfalls are that you need to watch out for against certain armies. And there's, there's uh, several really good podcasts for doing that. There's a lot of podcasts that discuss Warhammer 40k meta, where you can listen to some of the new and exciting things that different armies are coming up with and, and maybe start thinking about how you would operate against them. So in 40k, there is the option for constant research and constant updating of one's uh, tactics with the understanding of what's going on around you. For Belagarth, it can be a little bit harder. It can be a little bit harder to look across the field and know, especially if you're in an unfamiliar area. You know, here in the West, where I've spent the majority of my Belagarth career, when I take to the field, I can, I can pretty much know who's new and who's not based on who I recognize. You know, if I'm, if I'm looking around the field and 90% of the people there are people that I've been fighting with for the past 10 years, and then there's, you know, a, a group of people who I don't recognize, chances are they're new. And I can, I can make that judgment just based on that. When I go east, I have no idea. Like the, the year that I spent in the east going to events, I didn't know who was new. I didn't know who was skilled. I couldn't, I, you know, it was, into, it was a completely different field. And so I couldn't just do it at a glance once I took to the field. I actually had to get to know people. I had to go around to various camps and introduce myself and figure out how long people had been fighting and what units they were associated with and how seriously they took their personal training. You know, those were all things that I had to learn firsthand where, you know, here in the West, I'd gotten it the easy way. I didn't have to go out of my way to get it. And I could just remember those things. And if you're a new person, obviously you're not going to know any of this because, you know, you don't have the experience and you don't have the, the, the memory from, from everything else you've done. So making sure that you understand your enemy dispositions, you understand what they're bringing to the field, you understand how they know how to use it. You know, me looking across the field at somebody who I know is a sword and border, but they brought out a spear because they're just wanting to work on spear. That's a far weaker spearman than somebody who the spear has been their primary focus for the last 10 years. I'm, I'm going to rush the new spear way quicker than I'm going to rush that, that vet spear. So that's, that's definitely something to know because it helps you make sounder plans for the future. The next point in, uh, when you're marching in the neighborhood of the enemy is to move unpredictably, quickly, and together. Now, of course, this is easier done with a small group. You know, if you're trying to move quickly and unpredictably and together with a massive group, it's not going to be... It's not going to be easy. It's going to be borderline impossible to do those things. However, if, if you're able to... This keeps you from being intercepted, for one thing. As we said before, you're most vulnerable when moving. So if you're moving unpredictably, it's harder to intercept and get you at a, at a bad spot 
if your enemy does not know where you're going or or if you're if you look like you're going in one direction but then you switch it up immediately or or, or go suddenly in another direction this can interfere with your enemy's plans as well and so again with a larger group most of the time you're going to be shouting very very loud in order to make sure that everybody hears it but that's not just the people on your team it's the people on the other team as well so uh, it's hard to move unpredictably with a large group of course quickly you want to get there as quickly as possible because while you're in transit you are the most vulnerable and so you want to get from site a where you're protected to site b where you're hopefully protected as well and you want to you want to get there as quickly as possible if you can double time double time and then you want to do it together you want to make sure that nobody is getting strung out nobody is getting left behind uh, nobody is getting distracted with any, any things going on around you if you are moving you got to make sure that you move you got to make sure that everybody is on board with that plan too and so again for a smaller group it's easier to communicate that and kind of remain on board and have these things be successful and again with 40k it's the same thing move unpredictably quickly and together you know if, if your opponent thinks that you're going to go someplace let them think that don't correct them not until you've moved someplace else that's uh that's military theory right there that's good stuff the next one is to use pickets and skirmishers we've talked about this before but particularly with frederick the great who was a huge fan of pickets and skirmishers in fact he won battles because of his pickets and skirmishers but for us this is important when we're moving because again it keeps you from getting fixed so we've talked about pakshaw and, and uh and uh, before on this show and how effective he is at making sure that large enemy forces do not close on you beforehand like fixing them in another place using folks like pakshaw to go out and intercept potential issues before they get to you and kind of fix them over there and, and these people know like like pakshaw knows not to get over invested or not to get himself overexposed and like once once the danger is passed and like once a group has moved on he'll he'll move and rejoin the group because you know he, it, his job isn't to go and die out there his job is to keep the enemy at bay until the the danger is passed and he can rejoin the group and he knows that he doesn't have to be told that it's just something he knows but for people who are new at being a picket or new at being a skirmisher that is the goal the goal is that you you don't go out and and die a needless death the goal is that you go out you're able to intercept the enemy forces fix them in a position and then hopefully rejoin the main group and this works just as well for for 40k as well i i definitely use pickets i definitely use some sort of melee force or thicker force out in front is like a screen a screening unit for for the other movement that's going on that's another good word for it some sort of screening unit um it, it's very important especially if you're moving tanks you do not want orcs rushing your tanks uh unprotected and so having some sort of screening unit out there while your tanks are moving very important keeping weapons at the ready not as important for 40k because again all of your little plastic soldiers are ready to go they've got their weapons either their their teeth and claws or bolters and blades bared and ready to go at all times they never rest but for those of us on the field it can be entirely too easy to put yourself at ease to not have an, an arrow drawn if you're an archer to not have a rock out if you're a, a rock person to have your spear in a position that's awkward or to have a sword stored in a position other than your weapon hand these are uh, are good ways to be caught with your pants down as it were you know you want to make sure that you're keeping your weapons at a ready we've talked before about having a non-hostile approach on the field for instance as toto does where he, he keeps his shield down by his side and his, his weapon arm somewhat drooped and, and isn't making direct eye contact but the, his weapons are still ready 
You know, if somebody runs up on Toto, he's able within a split second to snap to a defensive position. If you have to reach for your sword while actively on the field, you have already lost the speed game because your opponent who is burying down upon you presumably has not made the same mistake. So making sure that your weapons are at the ready and you are ready to use them is very important when dealing with a, a battlefield presence. And the last point that I want to make in this section is that is, is the idea that, again, we've touched on before with previous authors, that when you're on the plains, you are vulnerable to cavalry. You're vulnerable to, to fast-moving units on your opponent's side. Whereas if you are in broken ground, you are vulnerable to infantry. So making sure that you are balancing your force uh, and, and perhaps putting your, your anti-cav units in the plains areas and putting your anti-infantry units in your broken areas or going into the broken areas is a good way to prepare for this. Not every plains is going to have some cav. Not every broken ground is going to be infested by infantry. But when it is, you want to make sure that you're prepared for that, for that eventuality. You know, to be on the plains and not be prepared for cavalry is to invite calamity. To be in broken ground and not be prepared for infantry, either ones who have been prepared in ambush or ones that are going to maneuver on you once you're in the position, that's calamity as well. So be aware. Be aware of where you are and what, and what that's going to entail. And, uh, and definitely be aware of these things when marching in the neighborhood of an enemy. So before we go on to our battle, I just want to recap real quick. To, in this episode, we've talked about keeping health and morale and how food is an important, uh, one would say pivotal part of that, in addition to water. And the means of preserving health are rather diverse. You can avoid certain areas when camping. Uh, you want to make sure that work is done during certain parts of the day, that you have prepared for weather eventualities, that medical supplies are on hand, and that one has clean water and a good re exercise habit. And of course, when uh, preserving one's own morale, it's good to remember the famous mutinies of history and to keep busy employed, either on the field or inspecting arms. Uh, to drill constantly, to socialize, to heed complaints, and to keep promises, and to make sure that your people are being used in the most effective means possible. In the second section, we talked about what number should compose an army, and what sorts of calamities face an army that is entirely too large for its own good. We definitely touched on the point that discipline and skill are better. And in marches in the neighborhood of an enemy, we talked about when one is most vulnerable, uh, how to move, and what to look for in different places. So, I think without any further ado, we're going to move into discussing our battle, or shall I say, uh, prelude to a campaign when we talk about the events that preceded the Horus Heresy. familiar with the lore of Warhammer 40k probably already recognize where I'm going with this. Um, those of you who are not, I do encourage you to stick around. Even if you don't play Warhammer 40k, the lore is extremely rich and the authors have done an amazing job of creating a rich and believable universe in which believable things <laughs> happen. You know, the, the way that uh, human events or the, the course of the human history progresses is kind of in line and, and takes a lot of 
nods from our own history here on Earth. And so in such a way, this fiction often speaks a lot of truth as to the nuances of the human condition. So I find it to be extremely useful. And of course, I'm also a huge nerd. So I, I love uh, talking about the lore as often as I can. Thumbs is not here right now uh, because, again, he is sick. And while we are wishing him a very speedy recovery, I am going to take this time to nerd out a little bit about 40K. Now, an addendum for those of you who are a part of the 40K community or reading the books or who are interested in doing either of these things, this particular section is a massive spoiler. It is going to just be one long spoiler. So if you are wanting to get some surprises out of the Horus Heresy books, or uh, if you are currently working on, on something in the, along those lines and you do not want something spoiled for you, I will not be offended if you do not listen to this section because, yeah, um, we don't want to do any spoilers. But I, I do feel compelled to make sure that those of you who might be working their way through the Horus Heresy series or are wanting to are aware that uh, throughout this analysis, I'm going to be dropping just a, a, a ridiculous amount of spoilers. So without any further ado, here we go. The Horus Heresy was a civil war of galactic proportions. As the Imperium of Man had spread across the galaxy, it had done so with the help of the Primarchs, who were slowly rediscovered by the Emperor. Uh, the Horus Heresy was when half of these Primarchs turned against the rest of the Imperium and aiding the forces of chaos, sought to unmake the Emperor's work. Now, the heresy was ultimately unsuccessful, and the forces of chaos and the traitor legions were beat back, but the damage was done, the Emperor was felled, and the Imperium is what it is now in 40k, a dark and dismal place where religion has stamped out the idea of uh, science and reason, which were kind of the Emperor's whole point. Uh, the whole time he was being like, I'm not a god. And then 800 years after he died, I'm sorry, was interred on the golden throne. You have the uh, the widespread belief that he's a god springing up and that <laughs> dominating the Imperium. So if Imps ever wakes up, he is not going to be pleased about that particular fact, as Gulliman was not pleased. But I digress. So the heresy was was truly awful. It broke the Imperium in, in basically in half. The entire galaxy was on fire as a result, and, and it was absolutely a terrible thing. But the evidence of this heresy was apparent much earlier on, and, and more so than the insidious whisperings of Erebus or in the plottings of Corpharon. There were other elements that existed, particularly in the traitor legions, that were, in hindsight, perhaps, uh, big red flags. So let's go over them. And, and the reason we're talking about this was the section today where we talked about mutiny. Got me thinking about the ways to be able to prevent mutiny. And also part of the reason I decided to talk about this was it's darn hard to find in the course of human history a recorded mutiny that changed the course of a battle. Try typing that into Google. Because I couldn't find it in my books. So I went to Google. And Google had like one or two examples that weren't very good examples. And I, I decided that this was actually a way better representation of why uh, preventing mutiny and the, these different ways of pre preventing mutiny are even more important when taking within this context. So let's begin our analysis. Uh, to me, one of the first instances where the emperor should have taken more direct action was uh, the incident of the construction and destruction of Monarchia. So for those of you who are not familiar with Warhammer lore, Monarchia was a, a shrine world, a temple world, basically, constructed by the word bearers to exalt the emperor, 
who at the time they viewed as a god. Uh, Lorgar had established this within his legion. He had been writing about it for some time. He had several texts out. And so in Monarchia, they wanted to make the perfect paradise for this faith for the emperor. And the Ultramarines raised it. They destroyed everything that the word bearers had built. And the word bearers were made to kneel in shame in the ashes of what they had built. If the emperor didn't foresee this creating some feel-bads in the word bearers, um, he's not nearly as psychic or as <laughs> um, uh, predicting as he is uh, rumored to be. Because this was obviously the seeds of, of Lorgar's anger and resentment toward the Imperium that would later be able to be turned into a weapon against the Imperium. This went directly against what the Emperor had been preaching. He had admonished Lorgar before for spouting this religious stuff in regards to him and his divinity, which he constantly attest he was not divine, he is not a god. But this, when this led to this particular incident, uh, it should have been a massive red flag for the rest of the Imperium. And it's not like the Emperor had not used the Space Wolves to stamp out problem elements amongst the Primarchs before. We have two redacted examples of Primarchs that, again, we don't know anything about them, but that we know the Space Wolves have been employed in the past in order to curb um, issues within the, the within uh, other Space Marine Legions. And so why that wasn't done here, you know, I, you can point to the fact that the word bearers were extremely good at securing compliance. You can point to their, uh, their stellar record up until this point. There were maybe a number of reasons why they were not censored more severely. But in allowing this resentment to build within the Legion, allowing these folks to remain together uh, where they could let it fester on a group level, level was not a good decision and would ultimately lead to the, uh, the again, the, the main occult reasons behind the Horus heresy, the uh, attainment of the blade that was used to stab Horus, of course, the whisperings of Erebus. Uh, these would all become issues that were fueled by this particular incident at Monarchia. The next thing I want to talk about is Luther's exile to Caliban. So within the Dark Angels, you have, of course, the Primarch Lionel Johnson, who was raised on Caliban by his adopted father, Luther. Now, Luther was already the greatest man of his age at this time. By the time the lion came around, Luther was, always, was already well thought of, well spoken of, and was probably the greatest man on Caliban at the time. So when the lion came and eclipsed him, Luther, on the surface, of course, was a very humble man. He was a very gracious man. And so he allowed the lion, who he viewed as being a superior being, rightly so, to kind of eclipse him. But again, Luther was only human, and there, could, there had to be some resentment, there had to be some bitterness that grew within him. And when there was an incident involving a, a potential assassination attempt on the lion, and Luther ultimately acted correctly and, and uh, facilitated the, the issue from, from passing, the lion detected in his heart the fact that he had hesitated, the fact that he had thought, even if only for an instant, of allowing the assassination to go through and the lion to be potentially killed. In seeing this, the lion banished Luther and other dark angels that he didn't necessarily trust back to Caliban. Now, this was done under the guise of saying, we have a, a new uh, batch of recruits that is being uh, trained up. We want people who are experienced, people who know what they're doing, um, people that we trust, quote unquote, to handle that. And so this was the excuse that was given to Luther by the lion when he was sent back. But that was not believed. And it was certainly not what fueled the 
Fallen incident and ultimately the destruction of Caliban and the lion falling into a very deep coma. So the lion made a mistake here and it was born out of sentimentality in that I'm assuming that the reason he didn't kill Luther or order again a more um, violent censor in this particular case was because Luther was ado his adopted father and he didn't want to believe that Luther was capable of this kind of treachery and just maybe wanted him out of sight so he didn't have to think about it anymore. And this sentimentality would come back to bite him in a big way. The next point that we want to talk about are the Night Lords. Any of you who know anything about the Night Lords will know that they were problem children from the very beginning. Kurz himself went full emo serial killer Batman on this in that he became a, uh, a guiding force of what he considered justice on his home planet of Nostromo. Now, before he went there, the old crime families of Nostromo, Nostromo, excuse me, ruled everything. And they did so with an iron fist. And this is a place where if you can imagine mafias and gangs running everything, it was violent. It was fairly horrible for most people. It was not a place where anybody would necessarily want to live. But this was the world onto which the Night Hunter was born. He viewed himself as an extension of justice. And in doing so, committed the most horrendous of murders against anybody who committed the smallest infraction. So if you stole something, it didn't matter for what reason, you were probably going to get flayed if he caught you. If you murdered, you were definitely going to get flayed. Rape, the same idea. So uh, he, he equally terrorized the criminal element of Nostromo into submission. And to such a point that everybody was too afraid uh, to commit crime. And it became a fairly peaceful place to live. Uh, very fearful very uh, uh, terrified, but safe. So the Night Lords uh, become a thing. The Emperor comes, uh, grabs Kurs, puts him in charge of his legion, and they quickly become renowned for their terror tactics. Now, often, very often, Kurs argues within the books that this is the way his father wanted to make him. His father wanted him to be a terror machine because each of the Primarchs were made to kind of be exultant in a different form of warfare. And for the Night Lords, this is terror tactics. Uh, Kurz often boasted that his compliances were achieved with far fewer fatalities than the ones of the Ultramarines or the Salamanders even, where they went in and they fought full-scale wars against, like, folks who were resisting occupation, rather than Night Lords going in, you know, killing a, a couple hundred thousand people gruesomely, and the rest of the population saying, we don't want to play. So Kurz argued, of course, for the effectiveness of his tactics, and his brothers... Uh, thought that he took it a, a bit too far sometimes. Definitely thought he took it a bit too far, but this was ultimately fueled by the fact that some of his sons absolutely did. So in the beginning, when the Night Lords were first being selected, it was the best, the brightest, um, you know, the cream of the crop that was coming from Estramo. But while Kurz is gone, the old crime families slowly come back. He didn't wipe them out. They were still there. They were just hiding in the shadows. And so they slowly come back and reassert their control and start to poison the crop of the Night Lords. Instead of sending the best and the brightest, they send the most violent, or the most corrupt, or, or as, as you can go, the not, not, not good folks, bad folks. And so this takes the Night Lords terror campaigns up a notch, because it goes from being using terror as a tactic out of necessity, to being using terror as a tactic out of enjoyment, or out of uh, entertainment. And so Kurz realizes this too late. And he is infuriated by this because he believes that his form of justice needs to be just that. It needs to be justice. It cannot be 
um, perverted by sadism. And so he returns to Nostromo and destroys it. Doesn't issue a warning, doesn't issue a ultimatum, doesn't go down and attempt to reestablish order. He destroys it from orbit. And of course, there were night lords that disagreed with this course of action, and they were dealt with appropriately, as one might expect of this particular legion. But this was a particularly troubling thing. This, this outright destruction of one's own homeworld, of one's own people, without first trying to achieve any sort of compliance, was a big red flag. Because this represents a severe departure from, again, imperial creed, from imperial truth, of trying to recognize all of the discordant parts of mankind as being a part of the Imperium and tr trying to integrate them the best as possible. This was not that. This was vengeance. This was not justice. This was vengeance for a perceived wrong. And so, again, this was a, a big issue where no action was, nece was necessarily taken. On the particular part of Kurz, who, upon realizing this cancer within his legion, did so too late. And, and probably should have been looking a bit more closely at these rosters that were coming in. Uh, the next thing is kind of up for question, whether or not it was a con contributing factor, but I honestly think it was, in that the, at the Council of Nikea, the use of psychers within the legions was banned. And those psychers were still allowed to remain part of the legion, they just had to suppress their powers. Now, certain legions did this better than others. Uh, for instance, within the World Eaters, it wasn't that big of an issue because they didn't like psychers to begin with. <laughs> so they, they were able to suppress just fine. Obviously, those psychers that belonged to the Thousand Sons chaffed at this, at this order a little bit more. Some groups uh, completely ignored it. And, and two of those groups were uh, continued to be loyal even after the split. Uh, the White Scars and the Space Wolves still had their psychers. They just called them different things, storm seers and uh, wolf priests. And they were like, oh, no, 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 it's a, it's a different form. We use different sorts of rituals and everything. It's different. It's just different. You know, uh, uh, we don't know how to explain it, but they're not psychers. They're, they're something else. So different groups were able to get around it. But again, this allowed resentment to fester. This allowed these potentially dangerous individuals, if the Imperium truly viewed them as dangerous individuals, then more probably should have been taken. They should have been isolated. They should have been put up for, for greater censor. But this was done again out of sentimentality. This was done because these were folks who had been serving for quite a period of time, and uh, they didn't want to penalize them for something that wasn't necessarily a sin, but was just being banned. So whether or not the Council of Nikea actively contributed to the heresy, um, I mean, it did so and it didn't so in, in, in different ways. Certainly it drove Magnus from the fold, but uh, what other uh, consequences may have existed from it are up for debate. So now enters Erebus and the establishment of the warrior lodges within the various legions, because they were established within just about every single legion. And these warrior lodges were places where space marines would go and they went in bereft of rank. It was not a place where sergeants or captains existed. It was a place where everybody was a brother, everybody was an equal, and could discuss ideas in a confraternity of, uh, of their brothers. Yeah. And on the surface, it seems like a very innocent and, and almost a good idea, but it was twisted for nefarious purposes and it violated the strict discipline of the legions. Those ranks existed for a reason. People were put into higher positions because they were trusted more or because they had proved themselves in such a way. 
uh, by doing this, this allowed even members from other legions, even members from other warrior lodges could come in and, and sit in on the meetings from another legion. And in the case of Erebus, use that as a position to corrupt. And many captains realized this was going on in traitor and loyal legions alike. They realized that these lodges had been established, but they did not do enough to stamp them out. Because these were places of rumor and gossip where traitorous ideals would be allowed to fester. So in doing so, it cleared the way for the corruption of the legions. Through these warrior lodges, the corruption began. And some legions that remained loyal still had to deal with some issues because of this. The White Scars, for instance, when they went to investigate Prospero, dealt with a uh, mutiny of their own on their ships between those who had belonged to these warrior lodges and thought that uh, Horus was in the right, declaring his rebellion, and those who didn't belong in the lodges, who absolutely still believed in the issue or in the uh, proclamations of the Imperium. So this led to a division even within loyalist legions. This establishment of these warrior lodges, this this uh, community that existed outside of the structure of the legion. So this was an issue, and this was a place where again resentment and uh, bitterness was allowed to fester. Of course, Rus was deployed on Prospero perhaps too late and not with enough support in my in my mind i don't know what the two nobody knows what the two legions were that were purged what their makeup was but prospero was made up of sorcerers again just i think everybody in the thousand suns or just about everybody in the thousand suns was a psyker and so trying to attack a psyker legion with just one legion that seems like an oversight to me why weren't the dark angels sent as well because you know the the Space Wolves may be widely regarded as the Emperor's executioners, but the Dark Angels fulfilled that role very well uh, in addition. So why weren't two legions sent? Because even though the, the early parts of the battle went very much in the favor of the Space Wolves, that was because Magnus only put up a half-hearted defense. He wasn't, his heart wasn't in it. He was having issues with, with the, the fight that was going on. It wasn't until the very end that he even gets involved. So if, if he had actually had a mind to come to war, it could have been a very, very different battle. But it wasn't. And so, you know, Prospero is destroyed. And again, this should have been a big clue that the Council of Nikea did not go far enough in controlling what, uh, what various psychers were doing in the legions. Oh, and, and then, of course, sorry, I, I, before I go on to the, the latter half of this analysis, you have Perturbo. And this is one of the last things that I saw. It's kind of in the same ideas of, or the same idea of Kurs destroying Rostromo. Paturabo goes back to Olympia to put down a rebellion and ends up uh, destroying Olympia for all intents and purposes. He moves from one city-state to another, just wiping out the population wholesale because he offered a, a, a choice to the people of Olympia. He said, either you decimate yourselves, which is to say kill one in ten, or I'm going to come in and basically just reap wholesale. And so he comes and conducts a genocide on his own people. And this is a little bit different than the one that Kurz did, because Kurz destroyed Nostromo from orbit. With all the planet-killing uh, arsenal that a, a Space Marine Legion has, he destroyed it from orbit. Perturbo goes down and goes city by city, quote-unquote cleansing this world until nothing is left but a, but a dead world. And he realizes his, his heresy only too late. And he knows he's going to face censure for this because he in and of himself recognizes that this was too extreme. What he did was too extreme and it will not bode well. However, during this time, of course, Horus has been corrupted. Horus himself, the, the war master of the legions after uh, the emperor appoints him at Olinor, 
He himself is corrupted, but he does not make the same mistakes with sentimentality that his brothers or his father did. One of the smart things he does is that he moves his brothers, his loyal brothers, to distant corners of the empire. Because he knows, uh, to a degree, he knows who he can count on to fall, either through promise or through kind of understanding their demeanor or their position, and who he's absolutely not going to be able to count on to turn traitor. For instance, after, after uh, Sanguinius' trial, he knew that Sanguinius was going to remain true. Uh, I don't think there was any doubt of the lion, because again, the lion was, he may have been terse, he may have been secretive, but he was loyal. Dorn and uh, Gulliman, of course, there was no way that either of them were falling. So Horace knew who he could count on and who he couldn't. And he split up the people who he couldn't count on so that they couldn't respond as quickly. Very good plan. Very smart. And then you have Istvan III, where the loyal elements are purged from the sons of Horus, the emperor's children, the world eaters, and the death guard. They take those within their legion who they do not think are going to be able to, to get on board with the new world order, they send them down to Istvan III and then they massacre them. There are a few who escape, either uh, from the surface or from uh, the ships in orbit, and are able to go and warn the Imperium, but not, not early enough. And at that time, again, only these four have revealed themselves. Sons of Horus, Emperor's Children, World Eaters, and Death Guard. They are the ones who revealed themselves at this particular place. So at this time, those within the Imperium that are even aware of the heresy believe that it's a small group, just this group, that has been corrupted. And so they hasten to the Istvan system, to where these traitors are holding up on Istvan V, and they go in to, to fight. Now, the, the three groups that went in, the three ultimately loyalist groups that went in, the Raven's Guard, the Salamanders, and the Iron Hands, were depending on the Word Bearers, the Alpha Legion, the Night Lords, and the Iron Warriors to back them up in their, in their fight against these other traitors. But, as we've already mentioned, the word bearers should have already been suspect. After the construction and destruction of Monarchia and them going directly against the will of the Emperor, the will of the Imperium, doing their own thing, and then kind of going into secretive, uh, hardcore uh, recruitment mode soon afterwards, they should have been suspect from the beginning. The Night Lord's handling of the corruption of their own ranks and then ultimately destroying Nostromo absolutely should have been an issue for the other loyalist forces should have been a big red flag and then of course perturbo and his brutal destruction of his home world also i think probably should have been a, a kind of a giveaway to the rest of those assembled there but it wasn't and the raven guard salamanders and iron hands found themselves smack dab between two large and prepared traitor forces and were wiped out almost entirely you know, it, it took very, uh, very long time for either of these three legions to reform in a way that was meaningful. Otherwise, uh, this went very well. So Horus here orchestrates the same principles we're talking about, but in reverse. He's planning a mutiny, but within those own mutinous elements, he is conducting smart tactics to manage this. Unfortunately, he is the bad guy. Well, I guess depending on where you side with all of this, but Horus, uh, kind of a bad guy to me. But in this, you can kind of see how this, these elements of mutiny played out, how it was a lot of different things. It wasn't just one thing that contributed or that was the big red flag for this, this ultimate heresy, this ultimate mutiny, but it was a lot of little things that contributed that at any point could have been corrected to a greater degree and maybe, hopefully, could have prevented the Horus heresy. All right, well, 
You know, I, I managed to fill far more time by myself than I ever expect to. I should never really doubt my ability to talk endlessly at the void because, you know, I'm, I'm quite good at it at this point. But uh, I appreciate you all joining us for this episode on uh, taking to the field. I encourage you to join us next time when hopefully Thumbs will be back with us if all things go according to plan. But if you haven't had enough Art of Wargaming in your life, you can check out our Instagram and our Facebook where I try to post memes and little factoids that relate to uh, our chapters or our, our, our most recent episodes subject matter. So if you want to check us out there, we're always looking for, for more folks. If you want to send me an email for whatever reason, whether it's to join in on the player profiles or whether it's to just chat, uh, you can find me at uh, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, of course, as you heard at the beginning, we've got a Patreon and we're, we're sending out rewards for our patrons and we're always, always happy to, to get new patrons. So for those of you considering and supporting in such a way or for those of you who do support in such a way, we thank you very much. Uh, you can always check out our sister programs over on the Earworm Network, Fried Squirms and General Nerdery, who are both excellent podcasts that I recommend. And yeah, yeah, I think that's good. So I, until next time, this has been Yaga Malark, signing out.